Hi, I'm Sammy, and welcome to episode 6 of Hey Chef. Today, I'm talking to Baltimore chef Helena Del Pesco, owner and chef of Larder, a globally influenced restaurant featuring organic ingredients sourced from regional farms. We talk about how the pandemic has affected her first year owning a restaurant, our shared love of fermentation, food as art, and her journey to becoming a chef starting from her vegan childhood to her travels around the world. So, let's get into it. Here is Hey Chef. Hi, Chef. Uh, so happy to have you on the show. Thank you very much for coming. Thanks. Happy to be here. So uh, I had brunch at Larder last week. I had a thing that on your menu called The Works. I'm not sure if it's the same every day, but I had uh, bacon, some eggs, some really good sourdough bread. You get that from Mozi Bakery. Mm. Yeah. It was really good. <laughs> yeah. Bread's uh, excellent. Yes. Uh, also some grilled shishito peppers, mm-hmm. grilled potatoes, and I saw there was like an apple in there, I think, as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, so the works is um, essentially the same every Sunday, but the certain elements change out based on seasonality and what we can get from local farms. So um, the shishito peppers were actually given to us by a friend, um, Matt, and him and his mom grew those peppers and just had a bunch. He dropped a big old tub of them off for us. So we grilled those and, um, and the apples too. Obviously, it's like peak apple season. So we have a couple elements on the plate that change with the seasons. Awesome. Yeah, the, the flavors really uh, blended well together, especially with the shishito peppers and the eggs. Like really, oh, nice. really good flavor. Yeah, it was awesome. Like we were sitting outside. So it yeah. was like the first time that I think I've eaten in a restaurant since the whole pandemic. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. What an honor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was even this uh, this little sparrow in the, in the courtyard. Yeah, uh, we, yeah, we were like feeding it a little bit of bread. It was coming over. It was so cute. <laughs> nice. Yeah, we actually, throughout, throughout the pandemic, the courtyard has had some interesting um, evolutions. Uh, the bar was closed for a while. So even though we were open for people to pick up food when we were doing takeout only, there weren't really people hanging out in the courtyard. And at some point we realized a morning dove had built a nest uh-huh. um, on top of one of the heaters. And so nature started to kind of take over in the absence of humans. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So you've been open for a little bit over a year. Is that right? Yeah, um, about, uh, I guess we're coming up on a year and a half. We opened May 9th of 2019. How has it been? Um, it's been both good and challenging. Um, we feel really lucky. Like Baltimore embraced us pretty quickly and we really quickly got a bunch of fans from the neighborhood eating with us regularly, uh, people who work in the neighborhood, people who live in the neighborhood. um, And that was really what we were hoping for, um, as well as, you know, people coming from all over and even coming up from D.C. So we had a nice, strong start. um, And then the pandemic hit when we were 10 months in. Uh, Most people who've opened restaurants will tell you the first two years are really tough, um, you know, generally. So with the pandemic hitting and the shutdowns being ordered, um, it was definitely a challenge that we weren't expecting. Um, But I do think in some ways, because we were so new, 
um, and still figuring things out. It maybe in some ways is easier for us than a restaurant that's been going for 10 years and is just like very, you know, running smoothly, doing the thing that they do and that they've been doing for a long time. We were kind of still figuring things out. So still pretty quick on our feet and able to to respond pretty quickly. And we have um, a pretty small team. So we were able to kind of, you know, respond individually to each of the people um, on our team and help them sort of figure out what moves they wanted to make during the pandemic. But um, yeah, it's exhausting. It's, you know, restaurants really like thrive on routine and systems and building a new system is kind of like opening a new restaurant. And we've done that like four times throughout the Mm -hmm. pandemic, kind of adjusting to the different regulations and different ways that people are comfortable or not comfortable um, eating out. So yeah, it's been very, it's been challenging, but we, um, we have a really great base of support already, which is nice. Yeah, we live in a very crazy time right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I haven't been to your restaurant when the pandemic was not here, but it seemed you guys were going strong. There were a ton of people when we went. Yeah, that Sunday that you guys were there for brunch, I was there earlier and then had to leave, but um, we weren't expecting it to be that busy because it was pretty chilly. Like, yeah, uh, we're, you know, bundled up. But yeah, the brunches have been strong. I think, you know, the outdoor space was something that was planned to be part of the business from the beginning. Um, and it's shared with a bar called Sodensonen, and they really, um, they designed that outdoor space. Did a great job. So we already had heaters. We already had a lot of the um, setup necessary to do outdoor dining. Um, so that I think has been, we've, you know, we're really lucky and, yeah. um, yeah, and yeah, we've had like a really strong outdoor dining presence. Yeah, that's definitely a huge upside to have that space. Yeah, we had 22 seats inside before the pandemic, and we haven't done any indoor dining since. And w- this winter, we're, we just launched a subscription service for starting with just December, and people sign up for a meal or two a week. And um, we that just sold out. So we, we kept it at 75 subscriptions for for this time around just because it's the first time we're doing it and then um yeah it seems like it's it's been popular so we'll continue with that as a strategy for the winter yeah that's awesome that's awesome um a lot of people are doing that uh that subscription box thing i feel like that's a huge business now especially in the pandemic and it's it's gonna grow yeah i don't know i mean it's true these, these kind of um like uh, blue apron and sun basket and things like that were definitely um, gaining popularity before the pandemic. And I tried a couple of those services just to see because I was curious, um, even though I'm someone who, you know, I'm comfortable cooking and don't, maybe don't, aren't their target, I'm not their target market, but um, I guess ours is a little different in that it's not necessarily like ingredients and recipes, but um, a meal that's sort of prepped for you and sort of delivered in, you know, not plated like a to-go box, you know, you would get typically and just eat when you get home. It's more like, um, you know, a stew that you warm up and then some rice to, you know, maybe warm the stew in the stovetop and the rice in the oven. So trying to give people like comfort food and the elaborate meals that, you know, you go to a restaurant for to treat yourself. So you're still having someone else cook for you but you can kind of stock the fridge and, and have that meal whenever versus just the night you pick it up. So it's kind of like a hybrid between a couple of different models. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of um, meals and stews and, and things, <laughs> um, how would you define your cuisine in terms of larder? Yeah, it's a good 
question. Um, I would say that we are going for comfort foods with global influences. Mm. So, um, and oftentimes, you know, familiar foods with some sort of unique twist to them. So I think like the kimchi mac and cheese would be a really nice example of that. It's a really rich, comforting mac and cheese. Um, it's made with hexes. Uh, a local, our local fermentation company is made with their miso kimchi. Mm-hmm. Um, so it adds like this little spiciness and tartness to it. So, you know, that for someone who might not know, have an experience of kimchi, but they know what mac and cheese is, they might be willing to kind of give that a try and discover, you know, something new that they like through a familiar thing. So that's what we try to do a lot of the time is sort of introducing something new and unusual through the framework of something familiar. Um, And then, you know, the other core element to our cuisine is that we source all of our produce uh, locally within 100 miles. So, you know, that's like Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia primarily. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have to work within those constraints. And um, I think with that comes a lot of creativity. So especially in the winter, thinking about, you know, what you can do with a sweet potato, whether it's baked into a pastry, fried into a chip, um, baked and pureed, you know, like getting really creative with a more limited set of ingredients is another thing that drives our menu. Yeah. We do a lot of fermentation also. Yeah, I love I love fermentation. <laughs> We're gonna Yeah, I think I had heard that. So what's your um experience with fermentation so far? I loved kombucha. Uh, well, I still, mm-hmm. I still do. Um, yeah. Uh, but one summer, I just watched so many YouTube videos, looked at so many articles about kombucha, like just completely nerded out. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Hex is actually right over here for us, like just down the block. Okay. Yeah. Nice. And uh, I walk there a ton, and uh, I would get their um, butterfly lime kombucha, my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and good one. Yeah, I even made my own kombucha. Okay, before. great. Yeah, I mean, I pickle a ton. Um, I made kimchi. Uh, I really want to make koji soon. Nice. Yeah, just a huge fan. Yeah, it's a really fun process. I worked actually at Hex for a little while when I first moved to Baltimore and learned a ton from Megan and Shane, the owners. Um, they're really like so pro at what they do. And um, yeah, it's it's cool to see them kind of grow that into a company that's being more widely distributed compared to like what we do at Larder is like on a very, very small scale. And we do jar up some of our pickles to sell, but a lot of times it's like just an element on a dish that adds like the acidity that lemons don't grow here. So, you know, you're trying to work with local ingredients, looking for another source of acidity is is sort of part of that challenge. And um, we use a lot of brine in things like, um, instead of where, where, where lemon juice or lime juice might be used. So like in our salad dressings, in our hummus, um, we have like a library in the walk-in of different brines that have different flavor profiles depending on the spices and the vegetables that were made using those brines. Yeah, I feel like, I don't know if you could argue this, but I feel like acidity is like one of the most important parts of a dish, I feel like, because it just rounds everything together. Yeah, I do find that often when I'm not enjoying something, it's because it lacks acidity. Um, I think the only other thing that rivals that for me, and this might be personal, is is like crunchiness. Mm. Not that everything has to be crunchy, but like texture-wise for me, like 
if I have something that's silky or soft, like I often want a, a little contrast of, yeah. of crunch in there too. Yeah. Not always, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's like, you can look at a dish and the balance of a dish, but then also you can look at a menu and the balance of a menu. So there might be something that has a lot of acidity on it or in it on the menu. And then um, something else that's leaning more towards sweet and, especially, I guess, if you're looking at a tasting menu, hopefully you're getting kind of taken through a range of dishes that showcase balance, but also contrast, right? Yeah, definitely. Going back to the global cuisines, do you have a favorite global cuisine that you incorporate the most or like just that you love the most? Hmm. I mean, I don't know that my favorite and what we incorporate are necessarily the same, partly because I cook and develop menus really based on my experience in in the in rest, other restaurants that I worked at, which is mostly were in Northern California. Mm-hmm. Um, so Camino in Oakland, which um, unfortunately closed after 10 years, the chef there, Russell Moore, um, was at Chez Panisse for over 20 years. And a lot of the Bay Area cuisine that I was exposed to and worked with um, kind of came out of uh, the Chez Panisse lineage, which is you know, loosely based on sort of Mediterranean, French, Italian, kind of rustic styles of cooking. So because that's what I worked with in other restaurants, it's what I'm comfortable working with in my own. I love Japanese food as far as my own personal kind of like what I gravitate towards Japanese and Southeast Asian. Um, I mean, I really love exploring new flavors. So I I wouldn't say I want to like tie myself to one, but I have played around with some in San Francisco. I got exposed to some really great Japanese food as Mm. well, eating um, at restaurants there. And, you know, there's so much beyond sushi. Um, There was a restaurant there that did that featured like they called it like uh, Japanese grandmother cooking, (laughs) you know, sort of more home cooking. Um, Chawan Mushi is something we have served Mm. in the restaurant that's Japanese. And one of my favorite Japanese comfort foods, it's like a savory custard made with egg and a dashi broth. And then it's sort of like a treasure hunt. Like you open up this cup and your first bite might have a piece of shiitake mushroom in it. Second bite, a little piece of shrimp. Third bite, a little piece of marinated chicken. And then there's usually a ginkgo nut in there too, um, which is a pretty fun uh, ingredient. So, so yeah, I think like Japanese comfort foods definitely up there for me. Awesome. Yeah, I love Japanese food as well. You, you mentioned a ginkgo nut. What is that? I haven't heard of that. Yeah, so ginkgo trees, you know, are all over uh, the country. They're uh, very ancient. They're called a living fossil sometimes because they haven't changed. Uh, They haven't really evolved since the time of dinosaurs. Um, They're a really cool tree, and they have this sort of fan-like leaf that right now is is bright, bright yellow. And um, the male trees don't have a fruit. The female trees do. And they kind of look like a cherry um, they drop on the ground and they smell kind of strong. So a lot of people don't like them because they feel like they make a mess and it's stinky. Um, but if you take those fruits and you can gather the ones off the ground, so it's, it's actually a great um, for, fall foraging item and something you can forage in an urban environment. You don't even have to go out to the woods. Um, you collect them and it's good to collect them with gloves because some people are um, have an allergic reaction to something that's in the fruit. Not everybody does, but if you're not sure, it's good to wear gloves. So you collect them up and then um, 
like in a bowl full of water, it kind of the, the fruit when it's ripe, it's really mushy. So it kind of just mushes off. And inside you have a seed that looks a lot like a pistachio. It's like a similar size, um, has a thinner shell. And then you trying to remember there's a specific process, like you wash them and then I think you just let them air dry for a while. And then you put them in a pan. There's a few different ways to do it, but the way I've done it is put them in a pan and kind of um, saute them in a little oil until they pop open. And then you shell them. And it, the nut is, it looks like jade. Like it's a really beautiful translucent and a little bit soft. Hmm. And the flavor is really mild, um, especially compared to like how intense the fruit smells. Um, but yeah, they're used in a lot of Asian cuisine. Um, I know there's like a stew that uh, is traditional with barley and ginkgo nuts. And I was actually just looking at a cookbook that had like ginkgo nuts in miso. Um, so yeah, it's one of those things that is around us, but like a lot of Westerners um, don't, it's not part of European cuisine. So we kind of don't realize it's a food awesome. item. Uh, what does it taste like? Um, it's really hard to describe. It, again, it's more like, I think it's more about texture. Mm. Um, it has this kind of soft, almost like a, if you've had chestnuts, you know, they're not really like a crunchy nut. They're a little more like soft, doughy almost. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like that. And the flavors, like, I don't know, a little grassy, a little nutty, um, but very, very mild. Cool little, little fact I just learned. <laughs> so Going back to uh, when you were talking about how you source things locally mm -hmm. uh, within like a hundred mile radius, I'm just curious, why, like why farm to table? Why did you choose that for your restaurant? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we do source things from further afield, like olive oil and salt and things like that. Um, so we didn't necessarily go into it wanting to be, you know, super, super strict about that, um, you know, partly because of for the creative freedom of wanting to get to work with, you know, ginger, actually ginger does grow here, but you know, we do use citrus sometimes. Like um, for me, it's more about like um, a big reason I opened a business is to try to be a part of an economy that I believe in um, to be a part of uh, both offering a way of making a living to my staff that they can, um, enjoy and, and feel good about and feel, you know, treated well and, um, and part of a, a, a good work environment. Um, but also I think supporting local farmers is a way small farms tend to, you know, just have a different relationship with the land and have a different relationship with their communities than say like a really big agribusiness farm in California or Mexico that is growing a monocrop in their main priority is, you know, profits, and they may be abusing the land or abusing the people who work for them. And not to say that that never happens in small farms, but when you work with a local farmer, and you get to know them, and you can go visit their farm, um, you're more likely to be supporting something you feel good about. Yeah. And so much in our economy is like invisible to us in terms of where our money goes and what we're supporting. So, um, so yeah, even though we use some things that aren't local, we always think of them as being in service of the local things that are like the stars of the menu. So we're never going to base a, a menu item on tomatoes in December because <laughs> they went unless it's tomatoes we can, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, so even though there might be things um, in there from other places, the, the main driver of the menu is always going to be like local produce. Mm. 
can you talk more about the like the farms that supply your ingredients? Like yeah, yeah. We work with three farms primarily right now. Um, Moon Valley Farm, which um, just relocated to uh, they're closer to Frederick now, but they they were leasing land before and now they own land. It's a woman owned and operated farm. And they uh, do both CSA boxes for you know, direct sales to customers and sell to a lot of restaurants in Baltimore and D.C. area. And I think they've been around for like seven or eight years now. So they're sort of mid, mid-size, mid-age um, for the, the local farms around here. Um, we also work with Strength to Love Farm, which is an urban farm in Sandtown, Winchester area, and they have a lot of hoop houses. So they're able to provide greens, lettuces, mustard greens, kale, chard, collards, things like that throughout the winter. They're not just a business, they have like a greater purpose, which Mm -hmm. is to um, provide jobs in a community where jobs aren't super bountiful. And program was started by a formerly incarcerated man who wanted Mm -hmm. to provide jobs to other formerly incarcerated people. Uh, so they have a really great mission statement and they grow really wonderful produce. So we love working with them. And then um, we work with Lancaster Farm Fresh, which is a big network of organic farms in Pennsylvania. And many of them are Amish and Mennonite, but not all of them. And um, they, a lot of them have been around for a long time. There's a, there's a, bit of a longer history of farming in Pennsylvania. So we get some of our more like commodity crops from them, like onions and carrots and um, some of the like staple things. Awesome. We've also worked with Chesapeake Farm to Table. We're not as much right now just because we've kind of scaled down in the pandemic, but they're a great network of small farms run by Calvert's Gift Farm in Maryland. And they have been farming for, I think, over 30 years and they've acted as mentors for younger farmers. So, um, they created a website where you can buy produce from them, but also from a bunch of small uh, farms across Maryland. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah. So going back to like a little bit of fermenting and things, um, yeah. what steps do you take uh, to make sure that you have like a bounty of fresh, but also like fermented, canned? Like to, to make it last throughout the year, yes. you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely a learning curve, um, especially because I spent 12 years in Northern California. So coming here, like the first two years I was here, I was really learning about what's in season here and um, how long those seasons last. And so working with, for example, Moon Valley Farm, we got to know that they grow a ton of peppers and there's a certain time of year when just like all the peppers are ripe and they have more peppers sometimes than, you know, they can sell. And so we made hot sauce, I think, for the first time three years ago with peppers that they were, they kind of reached out and were like, hey, can you do anything with like a ton of habaneros? <laughs> we have like a bumper crop. Um, so I was like, okay. And I kind of just threw them in a jar, you know, cut off the tops really quickly and, and put a, a 4% brine in and it was delicious. So now we plan that as part of our production plan for the year is, okay, you know, come September, we know that the peppers are going to start coming in. And so we try to plan for, um, you know, maybe three weeks of buying large quantities of peppers, fermenting them, and then blending them into hot sauce and kind of having vats of hot sauce in the walk-in that we can both 
serve with the dishes. Like you probably yeah. got a little. Yeah, I was gonna say now that it with brunch. Yeah, now that you mention it, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, um, and then bottle it up and sell it as well. So, you know, and, and keeping good records and sort of looking back at, you know, last fall and you know, if I bought forty pounds of peppers last fall and we ran out of hot wow. sauce a couple months before peppers were back in season, then well, this year I'm gonna buy sixty pounds of peppers <laughs> and see how wow. it goes. So, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. <laughs> When you were a kid, did did you grow up cooking at all? I did, yeah. Um, I grew up in a house where um, we were actually vegan when I was really little. We lived on a vegan commune um, where they made uh, soy milk and tofu and tempeh. And then um, when we moved away from the commune, this was in Tennessee, we lived in Nashville, and this was in the 80s. And you couldn't just go to the grocery store and buy tofu and soy milk, so my parents were making it at home for a while. And then um, slowly kind of through like learning about different health concerns. um, And I don't know, I'm sure a variety of factors of just being really hard to make all that stuff from scratch. Um, We started to slowly eat meat. But my mom, she didn't, I don't know that she like absolutely loved cooking, but she really wanted us to eat healthy. So cooking from scratch and feeding us home, home made meals was really important. And my dad did a little bit of cooking too, but his favorite dinner to make for us was um, popcorn and smoothies. So, <laughs> um, but I, I, my dad actually, I think taught me how to scramble eggs. I think that was one of the first things I learned how to cook. And, um, and I loved experimenting. Like I was a really creative kid. I did, I was always doing art projects and craft mm. projects. Um, and my cooking probably was like blended, like probably seemed more like craft projects sometimes. Like mm. I remember making a Oreo ice cream pie where I just like softened ice cream and crumbled Oreos into it and then like <laughs> filled up pie crust and um but also we had mostly healthy food in the house so I also made a cake once a cake <laughs> in air quotes with like whole wheat bread and layers of like peanut butter and jam and yogurt and like <laughs> frosted it with yogurt just because you know it was like that looks like a cake um so yeah, I, I always loved just like experimenting with mm-hmm. ingredients. And, um, but I did for a long time, I think I followed my mom's example and cooked more just for health and, and practical reasons, like wanting to be able to eat a certain way. Um, Oreo pie definitely wasn't healthy. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. So it was a kind of a contrast of like, <laughs> you know, mostly eating healthy, but then when there was junk food around, I was like really (laughs) excited about it as well. But uh, it wasn't until I moved to San Francisco and Oakland that I got exposed to like the farm to table idea and Mm. this sort of um, experience of working at a restaurant that takes field trips to farms and seeing how things are grown and tasting the difference between like really fresh in-season produce and other stuff, you know, so um, that I guess would be the progression, like valuing as a kid, like loving cooking and valuing like real food from the beginning. Yeah. So, um, and it's easy, you know, in this day and age to find things that are kind of like prepackaged and, you know, there's a lot of shortcuts out there, but like you can taste the difference. I think when things are made with care and made from scratch and that I'm sure that was like from that experience of her cooking for us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you, you mentioned uh, crafts and um, working with food and crafts, like combining them. 
yeah, I, th- I think one of the reasons that I love cooking is because I love art. Um, mm-hmm. I love to create things. I read that you're an artist and that you attended Minneapolis uh, College of Art and Design and grad school at yeah. UC Berkeley uh, for fine art. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. can you talk about like how you combine food and art? Yeah, um, it happened like I guess in a formal way first when I was in San Francisco and I was working in restaurants to support myself as an artist. And I grew up with the Passover Seder as part of my family tradition, the Jewish holiday of Passover. And I always really loved how that meal is a way to keep a a story alive. So you eat certain foods during the Passover Seder that are symbolic, like, you know, dipping parsley in salt water corresponds with sort of the tears of enslaved um, Jews in Egypt. And so there's all this symbolism and kind of flavor illustration of the story. And so I, I wanted to do something kind of using that format. And I, um, as part of a gallery, uh, there was a gallery in San Francisco called Southern Exposure, and they did a series of events that were actually staged in people's homes. And um, I did one, I did a dinner and basically I solicited stories from people about um, their families' um, immigration stories, like how their families ended up in the United States, whether it was one generation or many generations. And then based on those stories, I did research into different sort of food, different recipe traditions, different symbolism that I could use to kind of share those stories at the table. So once um, I had collected all the stories, I put together a menu of foods that would kind of retell those stories as a dinner in the group. And so that was really the first time I really blended the two together. Hmm. And, and I really got hooked on that um, way of like working with food. And so when I, that was before, right before I started grad school at UC Berkeley. And at UC Berkeley, I got really um, interested in working with ceramics. So I started making ceramic objects that would play a role in a dinner, um, like one of these kinds of dinner events I was doing. And then my thesis project at UC Berkeley was actually a restaurant run by kids. So it was like eight to 12 year olds. And we did a series of workshops starting with building recipes. Um, we printed menus on a risograph machine. We ceramic uh, utensils and dishes. And so we just kind of explored like that format of a restaurant through what the kids in the workshops kind of were interested in and their experimentation. And then we had a final event where the kids ran a restaurant for a day. And this is all at the Berkeley Art Museum. So it's hmm. um, a really neat idea. Yeah. And after that, I did another museum show that was about um, basically centered around a meal as well. And there was some video I created for that. Um, But ultimately, I kind of decided that rather than trying to find ways to fit food into the art world, I wanted to bring what I was interested in in the art world into a food business. Hmm. That's that's that's, awesome. That's where Larder came from. (laughs) (laughs) And the rest is history. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. So I I read about your travels around Mm -hmm. the world, like in Spain, uh, Mexico. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. So that that's it's really exciting to me. Um, I'm planning my own travels. Like when I'm 18, like right when I get out of high school, I want to go to yeah. Japan. I want to go to Denmark and uh, stage yeah. in a ton of restaurants. It'd be really yeah. fun. So I can just learn more about all of the other different cultures and cuisines. Um, yeah. So can you tell me like a little bit about uh, your travel experiences and like what you learned about the foods? Yeah. Um, yeah, I was very fortunate to get to travel for a year. It was sort of a um, year between leaving San Francisco and moving to Baltimore. Um, my husband and I just packed all of our belongings into a storage unit and traveled for a year out of two rolling suitcases. Um, and we were kind of following opportunities to do artist residencies in some different places. And so for me, the beginning of the trip really was more art focused. And then toward the end, I was doing stages in restaurants. And so the Mexico in Mexico City, I didn't stage in a restaurant, but I did a, a dinner, a pop-up dinner at a cafe that was run by a couple of young architects. And I had been in Oaxaca before Mexico City and learned about the history of cochineal, which is an insect that creates a red dye. And it, for a period of time, it was more valuable than silver being exported to Europe from central Mexico. And there's a whole lot of complicated colonial history wrapped into that. And so I kind of dove deep into that history and created a dinner that, again, sort of was meant to tell that story. Did they ever use that uh, that bug in cooking? Yes. And in fact, it is still used in food today. Mm. Um, ocean spray cranberry juice. Um, it's mm. used in cosmetics. Mm. Um, so it's, yeah, it's just, there's a... a really great book about it that I cannot remember the name of right now. Um, it's been a while. But um, yeah, it, it was used in food, but first it was textiles. So there wasn't really another, um, there wasn't really anything in existence uh, in Europe that could produce that color until the, until the Spanish were in Mexico and realized that the indigenous people there had been sort of cultivating this insect for dye. Um, so yeah, we did, I did use, I had actually brought some of the insects back from Mexico and, um, did the dinner here as well at Clavel when I first moved to Baltimore. That's awesome. Um, I, I restaged the dinner there and, um, so yeah, I did it in Mexico city and then here, and then I staged in Tel Aviv at a restaurant called Joe's Velos, which was, uh, run by an artist and a journalist. And it was very kind of um, informal and um, fun atmosphere, like a lot of artists, musicians. Um, it was like a really, they had a super eclectic menu. And Israel, I had never been to Israel before, and I didn't realize like how broad the cuisine was there. But, you know, there are like Yemenite restaurants there. I'd never had Yemeni food before. And so... I got exposed to some interesting new cuisines working at that restaurant and just being in Tel Aviv and eating, you know, at other places, Jewish, like Iranian Jewish food, Iraqi Jewish food, like mm -hmm. part of that Jewish diaspora that I had, like, didn't, you know, I didn't know that much about before being there. So that was really cool. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little more? I don't even, I don't really know much about that cuisine. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things that I had that I still think about was um, Gandhi, which is a Middle Eastern, it's like a Sephardic 
I think maybe in Iran and Iraq, there are both, uh, both have traditions of Gandhi, but it's like a matzo ball soup, but instead of a, a matzo ball, it's a chickpea mm-hmm. ball, um, a chip, chickpea dumpling. So it's chickpeas and chickpea flour. And there's also black lime in the broth, which is another unique, like having the, the citrus there is different than like a European version of matzo ball soup. So black limes are limes that have been salted and dried in the sun. And then you break them up and, you know, use them to flavor broth and things like that. So it was this really delicious, like citrusy broth with a really, you know, yummy, um, fluffy chickpea dumpling in it. That, that's awesome. That makes sense because uh, yeah. like falafels and like the the same region. Yeah. So you mentioned black limes. Is that kind of like like black garlic in a way? Um, there may be some, you know, chemistry similarities to what what's happening in the kind of preserving aging process. Um, black garlic is usually like held warm for a really long time at a, at a low temperature, which sort of caramelizes the the sugars and really like changes the flavor. Um, I don't know as much about the process of making black limes. I don't know how long, mm-hmm. you know, um, things are dried. I don't know about like they're, mo- you know, held moist or, but I think that I'm guessing that the salting aspect of it is important because I've dried limes before and they they can be really bitter. Mm-hmm. So um, usually like when something's um, bitter like that, salting it will like pull some of the bitterness out. So mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they they're they feel like ping pong balls. Like they're really hollow, so they're very very dry. And that's a that's a really good observation. I'm I would be curious to talk to a food chemist about that if there are some similarities in the process that term both of those black. Yeah. So were there any other stages one year trip? Yeah. So the very last one I did was at Arzac in northern Spain in San Sebastian. Um, or Donostia, as they would call it in the, the Basque language. I was there for a month, and that was definitely very intimidating because it's a three Michelin star restaurant, and I I kind of just, uh, you know, walked in not really knowing what to expect. Um, it was a really great experience in the end. Like, even though it was very intense and very high pressure, um, people were super welcoming and friendly and, you know, it's kind of crazy in, in these Michelin star restaurants, they have so many people who just want to have an experience of staging there that oftentimes there's like a third of the people working are staging. Yeah. Um, it's kind of crazy considering what a high level they're trying to maintain to have all these kind of novice, you know, stages aren't always, you know, people who are young and learning. Uh, there's a, a lot of different ways a stage can work. Um, sometimes it's like, Basically, in Europe, it seems like it's common to do your third year of culinary school is basically like working, you know, staging at a um, a high-end restaurant if you kind of want to, that's the lineage you want to be a part of. But there were also people there who had their own restaurants. So there was a guy who had a restaurant in Germany. And, you know, I think he just wanted to kind of gain new perspective and new ideas and learn from someone else. So he was there for just a week. There were a couple other people there who were, you know, much more established. So Saj can also be like an established chef spending time in the kitchen of another established chef or, you know, just keeping ideas fresh, learning from each other. And so it's a very cool system in that way. Um, I think it can be seen sometimes as like a problematic system as well, though, because 
there's a certain amount of privilege to be able to work for free yeah. uh, for someone, you know, that's not available to everyone. So the fact that that's often part of that, like climbing the ladder in restaurants can be seen as problematic as well, I think. But yeah, for me, it was, you know, usually they start you off on something really simple, like picking parsley, you know, so going through the parsley, picking all the leaves off the stems, like takes a long time. Um, but if you do that well, then they'll let you peel potatoes. And if you do that well, then they'll let you pluck feathers out of, uh, you know, game birds. And then if you do that well, I think like the scariest thing they had me do was, so Arzak has like very flamboyant uh, kind of theatrical dishes. And one of them was like, um, had all looked like a bunch of fall leaves, but the fall leaves were all like thinly sliced different vegetables. Some of them had been dyed, some fried, some dehydrated. And so one of my jobs was to take a potato and slice it like paper thin on a meat slicer wearing a chainmail glove. How many times did that take to get it perfect? Um, you know, I would say maybe I had like a 50% success rate, like 50% of the slices were good and the other 50% were rejected. (laughs) Um, But yeah, another job was to pick petals off of pansies and line them up, make a pile and do like the thinnest chiffonade possible so that it was like flower petal hair, basically, (laughs) that they like draped on this dish that was like a potato with like little spheres of some kind of sauce. And it was like very um, fluffy kind of cooking with lots of details and lots of kind of magic tricks, you know, the molecular gastronomy stuff, which is fun. But ultimately, you know, I realized it wasn't really the type of cooking that I wanted to do. So you mentioned molecular gastronomy and also Spain. Did you ever go to El Boye? I did not. When I was there, um, El Bulli was already already closed, uh, but I did get to go to, um, I mean, I, I ended up eating at Arzac, and, and um, Ferran Adria actually learned from the chef of Arzac, so um, I got to kind of taste that lineage, and we went to, to a handful of other molecular gastronomy restaurants, but we also went to like a traditional cider house which was really cool. Um, they, you know, cider, hard cider is a huge thing in, in that area. And they have these big, sort of like a food hall, but also like the cellar where the cider is kept in these giant barrels. And you basically, you pay a ticket price and you get like this set meals, like potatoes and steak and like huge portions of food, special kind of cheese from the area. Mm-hmm. And then you get a glass and you go in and they like pull, they open the spigot and this stream of cider comes out and you just stand in line and hold your glass under and <laughs> the next person puts their glass under yours really quick when you take <laughs> yours away. And it's just like a very particular um, sort of festive thing that happens there. And there's also, we also drove to the coast and had fish is huge there. So there's these sort of traditional restaurants where you pick a fish and they grill the whole fish outside for you and bring it back in yeah. So yeah, I had a lot of really amazing food experiences there. And just going to the farmer's markets too. That's always, Mm. for me, traveling and going to markets and seeing, you know, things that are new to me and and asking about how they're cooked there. And that's a huge part of the fun travel. Did you ever run with the bulls? (laughs) No, I did not. I actually spent time in Spain when I was in high school. I did an exchange program and um, 
And then I went back when I was 21 and stayed with the same family. But that was in like on the coast and uh, near Valencia. But yeah, I did not. I did not run with bulls. It never really appealed to me. <laughs> I did eat a lot of food. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so going back a couple years at your shape and eastage, how was that? Like, did it inspire you at all? Yeah, I had you know been living in the Bay Area for a long time already by then, and had eaten at Shape and East a couple times. And a friend of ours who had worked there for over twenty years had just been promoted to the head chef. Wow. And so I kind of knew it was like my chance to stage before I think we were, um, we knew we were going to be leaving the Bay Area. So I was able to spend six weeks going in once a week, just on Fridays. And so it was a shorter than some of the other stages I've done, but it's a really special place. It's very unique. Like there's an upstairs cafe and then a downstairs restaurant where it's always a fixed menu. And the kitchen is pretty small and there's basically three cooks in addition to the head chef, one on the fire, one doing like, you know, salads and cold side stuff, and then someone else on the range. And I I would come in and um, get to be part of the menu meeting, which was super interesting to see, you know, every the menu's different every day. Yeah. And they're also, you know, obviously farm to table and working with what's in season and available. And then um, just two seatings. So kind of amazing to see that like they would basically you know start prepping for the 5 30 or six o'clock seating at two and like mm. do so much in that wow. little amount of time i think each cook had like two dishes that they're responsible for and then jerome bog who uh, was my the friend who was the head chef at the time he was kind of there overseeing it and he would make like a little amuse-bouche a little like you know starter snack from something and he I think once he kind of saw him my way around the kitchen, he let me sort of be up in the kitchen during service. And, you know, it's just really exciting to kind of have all of that happening around you and people working at that level where they're so confident. And that's really cool to see, you know, so many years of experience kind of coming together into this really beautiful choreography of, of a meal. And really unique thing about Chez Panisse is that they actually sit down and eat a meal between the cooks sit down and eat a meal between the first and second seatings. Yeah. I don't know of any other restaurant where that happens and they eat the menu. And so I got to eat the menu with them. They don't plate it the way that they do for the guests. They more do like a family style version, but um, I got to sit with them and eat squab and beautiful mushrooms. And so it was a really, really special thing to get to do. Yeah. Did you ever meet Alice Waters? Um, yeah, I met her a few times. Um, actually, a friend invited me when I was, you know, starting to do more cooking stuff. He invited me and a bunch of other people in who were kind of bridging the art world and the cooking world to hang out and have a meal together. And so I, she was at that. And, you know, she was like someone you'd run into in the Bay Area at events and things. But the time I was at actually at Chez Panisse, I think maybe she like buzzed through the kitchen like once, you know, she's Mm. not really there cooking anymore. You know, after 40 years, she's like more of a, yeah, she's just involved in so many like big projects around the world. And so she has sort of handed off that day-to-day stuff to to the chefs who work for her. Was she nice at all? Or (laughs) at all, was she nice? (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, I, my experience of her was that, um, was that she was nice, but I didn't necessarily like have like any 
super long. I don't know her that well, but she does seem very nice. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, going back to Baltimore.、Mm-hmm. So what what do you think of the Baltimore food scene here? Um, the Baltimore food scene, from you know first landing here,、um, really struck me for how open and friendly it was.、Um, Clavel was one of the first places that people recommended to us、um, really highly when we first were visiting before we even moved here, and we fell in love with Clavel. Just like you know, the food was so good, but the vibe was great, and the the people just like it was such a、um, warm like sort of. Festive feeling environment and and then yeah everyone that we have kind of come into contact with through the process of building our restaurant has been so just supportive and enthusiastic and you know I think sometimes in city when you come to a new city it can people can feel a little bit like territorial about a new person coming in but yeah we've just really been felt embraced and. Yeah, it seems like there's more and more exciting things happening, and room for even more exciting things to happen. So, Hex Ferments really is what drew us here first. They、um, hosted a workshop with Sandar Cats at White Lock Farm, and I came down for that when we were staying in in Delaware with family. And just seeing like a sold out fermentation workshop, I was like, wow, cool! Like、yeah. people in Baltimore are into this, and <laughs>、yeah. so you know, it seems like there's an audience for what we. Want to do? Yeah,、um, such a cool guy, Sandor Katz. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would love to take a class with him someday. I mean, that that workshop was great, but it was kind of a you know a brief thing. But he、mm. does these like month long intensives、um, in Tennessee, actually. So it'd be cool to do that someday. Awesome.、Mm-hmm. So, do you have any、uh, favorite Baltimore restaurants other than Clovell? Uh, yeah,、um, we love Dylan's. We live in Hamden, so Dylan's is kind of like our neighborhood spot. Um, we also, well, Alma is moving、uh, mm. closer to us now, which I'm really excited about.、Um, the Venezuelan food that they make is really delicious. I'm gluten free, so I love that. You know, arepas are corn flour、um, and、um, really delicious.、Um, there's this new place that just opened, Nihao, which、uh, I've only eaten at once during I, the pandemic, I'm and I'm、that. really excited because it reminds me of. Some of the Bay Area, you know, Asian food options that we had that were like a little more unusual, a little more kind of expansive than some of the typical, you know, offerings that、um, you find in American cities. So excited about them! Harmony Bakery, I really love too.、Um, being gluten free, they have really great. Like I, re- I'm not vegan, but I really love their vegan quiche and their thin mint cookies. Probably one of my favorite. Cookies. We also eat at Corner Pantry a lot. I feel like、mm. Corner Pantry shares a lot of similar qualities to Larder in terms of just like they work with a lot of local stuff, and the food is really like fresh and well balanced flavors, nice variety of options. So yeah, we'll often get like brunch there or lunch. But it's one of the sad aspects of running a restaurant is that it's hard to go to other people's restaurants、yeah. <laughs> because you're working, you're all working at the same time. Um, but yeah, we、um, Cocina Luchadores too.、Um, you know, their food is like a little bit different style of Mexican food than Clavel's, and they have things like sopes and different soups and things like that. Me- Mexican cuisine. I've spent a lot of time traveling in Mexico, so、mm. I definitely love that Mexican cuisine. It's more and more possible in the U.S. to like get really good Mexican food. Yeah,、uh, 
going back to Nihal for one second. Um, yeah. I was actually just going to mention that. <laughs> uh, I saw that a Baltimore Magazine article about them. They seemed really cool. Like, their pecking duck looked amazing. Did you have that? I didn't, but I had... Um, my husband actually just brought home some takeout, so I didn't even really get to choose the menu items. I just kind of like tasted what he brought home, but they had this cool thing that was like, it was a rib or ribs, but then also like a corn cob that they had cut into quarters and sort of spiced similarly to the ribs. It was sort of like the idea of like a, a vegetarian rib, which mm. I thought was really creative. And then they had a, like a tofu dish that I think they're making their own tofu, which is really special, you know, like a soft silken fresh tofu. Um, I've only had a few dishes so far, but I'm excited to try more. Yeah, I'm going to actually, my birthday's coming up. We're getting that for my birthday. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. That's great. <laughs> Wrapping up a little bit. Do you have um, any advice for me as I continue my journey to become a chef? Um, Advice. I don't know. Advice is hard because everybody has such a different journey. But I guess my advice would be to not take yourself too seriously and try to like continue to engage with food in a way that is, you know, fun and joyful and to not, I don't know, having a restaurant is a huge responsibility. And when I see people who open restaurants when they're really young, I'm impressed, but also like worried for them because it takes over your life. So I'm 42 and I'm glad I waited, you know, this long to open a restaurant because I don't know that I could have been I'm glad I had a lot of uh, life experience and freedom to, to travel and do things like that before having such a big responsibility of, of having a brick and mortar. And so, yeah, just to, you know, try as many things as you can and learn from people that you admire and um, experiment. Cool. Thank yeah. you. Uh, do you have any like plugs that you want to plug? <laughs> Anything you want to plug? Um, yeah, I'm not great at that, but I should try. Um, I mean, Instagram is the best way to keep most up to date on what we're doing. We post our menus there, and you know, let people know about events and things like that. So that's at Larder Baltimore, and we are going to be announcing some workshops for January and February with the idea that, you know, we want to make them available in December so that people can maybe purchase them as gifts for people. Um, they will be virtual for now. And then hopefully like when the weather gets nicer, we'll start doing some outdoor workshops. We were doing um, fermentation workshops before the pandemic and I love teaching fermentation. So definitely something that has always been a part of the vision of Larder to be not just a place where people can go and eat food, but learn more about food. And so, yeah. And then the subscription service, you know, we'll keep that going. And so if you're interested in that, even though it's sold out, you can uh, email us and we'll put people on a wait list for the next time it opens up. And that's hello at larderbaltimore.com. Awesome. Thank you, chef. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this episode of Hey Chef. Next time, I will be back with Chef John Shields, who is often referred to as the culinary ambassador of the Chesapeake Bay. He has co-owned Gertrude's, located in the Baltimore Museum of Art, for over 20 years. He is a cookbook author and TV personality. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review. Follow us on Instagram at Hey Chef Podcast 
and tell your friends about us. Our website is wypr.org forward slash programs forward slash hey dash chef. This podcast is brought to you by CCBC Student Life's New Media Collective, CCBC's Communication and Media Studies Department, and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Produced by Beth Bonick and Brian Kim. Artwork by Sammy Bonick and Shannon Design. Theme music by 905 Productions. Thank you to WYPR 88.1 FM, Baltimore's number one news talk station and WYPR senior producer Bob White for being our studio engineer.